Welcome to another episode of Curbside Consults, where we take a deep dive into the practice-changing research published in the New England Journal of Medicine. In today's podcast, we are joined by Dr. John Brownstein to discuss the recent outbreak of vaping-associated pulmonary disease in the United States that has dominated the mainstream media and the journal. But first, in with the new, as today marks the first podcast hosted by your 2019-2020 editorial fellows at the New England Journal of Medicine. My name is Dr. Ahmad Zaheen, and I'm a pulmonology trainee from Canada. I'm joined by my colleague from across the pond, Ken. Hello, I'm Dr. Ken Wu, and I'm a pediatric trainee from the UK. And might I add, with the dulcet British tones just made for podcasting. Thank you very much. Is that just a nicer way of saying I have a face for radio? Let's move on. We are missing our third musketeer, Dr. Krista Nottage. She's a general surgeon from the Bahamas and is currently in San Francisco at the American College of Surgeons Clinical Congress. You'll hear more from her and her exciting adventures in about two weeks. Krista, Ahmad and I will pick up where our predecessors left off. On that note, our first order of business is a thank you to last year's fellows, the AAA team of Angie, Angela and Amanda, for all of their great work last year and seemingly handing over the reins to us. Yes, big shoes to fill, but I think they've put us in a good position to succeed. We'd all like to wish you the best of luck in your future careers. Yes, and looking forwards, we have a lot of exciting episodes planned for the year. We'll be continuing the tradition of bi-weekly podcasts alternating between in-depth looks at seminal papers published in the journal and overviews of key statistical topics. We're looking forward to having you join us over this year. Wonderful. So, Ken, we've been in Boston for four months already. Thoughts so far? Yeah, absolutely loving it so far. Uh, it's an interesting experience being a tea-drinking Brit working in a job that involves lots of reading and writing. I'm still getting schooled on spellings and grammar from the deputy editors. What about you? Yeah, agree. It's been amazing. But uh, as you can probably tell from my intermittent sniffling, suffering from a bit of a cold right now. A cold, I should add, that I didn't have when I interviewed our guest. Well, that's uh, appropriate for today's topic, isn't it? What, disease outbreaks? Yes, I'm now painfully aware that I'm trapped in a recording studio with you, patient zero. Is now a good time to tell you that I sneezed into your tea right before we started? Excellent. Well, before I do anything else to Ken's tea, perhaps we should move on to today's guest, Dr. John Brownstein, who joins us to explain how he uses real-time digital surveillance as a means for monitoring disease outbreaks, including the vaping-associated lung illness that is now currently affecting the United States. So without further delay, today's show. If you missed our first episode on electronic cigarettes with Dr. Jonathan Winnikoff, you can go all the way back to June 13th of this year for an introduction to the topic. Shortly after the podcast was published, the medical community was rocked by numerous reports of serious lung illness tightly linked to electronic cigarette use, also known as vaping. On September 6, 2019, the New England Journal of Medicine published the preliminary report detailing 53 cases of severe acute pulmonary illness in young adults with a prior history of electronic cigarette use. Some of the data regarding the cases are striking a median age of 19 years old, most patients with no significant past medical history, a 94% hospitalization rate, of which two-thirds were in the intensive care unit and one-third mechanically ventilated. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention has since launched an investigation, and at the time of this recording, there have been 1,479 cases and 33 deaths reported within the United States alone, prompting many states to limit or outright ban the sale of electronic cigarettes. But through the use of real-time digital surveillance, the first signs of trouble could be dated back to June 2019. In a correspondence published in the journal on September 20th, researchers at Boston Children's Hospital explained how they use cutting-edge techniques to accurately detect and monitor disease outbreaks around the world, including the aforementioned vaping-associated disease. 
Our guest today is the senior author of that paper, Dr. John Brownstein. Dr. Brownstein is an epidemiologist, chief innovation officer at Boston Children's Hospital, professor at Harvard Medical School, and most importantly, a fellow displaced Canadian. Dr. Brownstein, welcome to the podcast, eh? Well, it's great to be here, eh? By way of introduction, can you tell us what it is your group does? What is real-time digital surveillance? So about 10 years ago, and if actually slightly more than that, we've been looking at the idea that there was a huge amount of data that existed on the web, whether it's in social media, local news sites, blogs, chat rooms. It's a lot of disparate data, but when you started to look at that information in detail, you recognize that you could pick up signals of emerging threats, could be infectious disease or chronic, that you couldn't sort of pick up from other sources. We all know that there's a real challenge in public health in collecting data about cases, and that information can be slow to move up the channels from local public health to CDC to eventually organizations like the WHO. But what we recognize, and this actually started even during SARS, where there was communications happening about cases very early on that were taking place in chat rooms. And even though that data was unstructured and sort of all over the place, if you could create tools to organize that content and derive important signals, you could begin to understand the world in a completely different way and essentially start to provide public health with a whole new data source that could arm them with the ability to respond much more rapidly. And it seems to be effective. The first patient cases that we know of were being admitted to hospital in early July. Your algorithm picked up cases as early as July 25th. But with such a deep well of information, how do you filter out real data from background noise? This has always been a challenge, right? So the idea that we're picking up information online means that you're going to have a huge amount of noise. And so it really depends on a few things. One, developing good keywords and better taxonomies to understand what people are saying online. Um, having an ability to filter out noise and, and terms that really are not related to cases of actually what we're looking at in this case, which is vape-related illness. Um, the ability to classify the reputation of a source as well is really important. So you might take a New York Times article with a different level of validity than a personal account uh, on Twitter. And what you're looking for is corroboration from multiple sources and the ability to organize all that content to provide you the sort of best possible information. Now, realistically, there's still going to be sort of an issue with picking up false information, of course. And so we have a whole team of people on our, our end that are looking at this information and effectively curating the information that's coming in through these data mining sources. And what has digital surveillance told us about the epidemiology of vaping-associated lung disease? Right. So there's a couple things. One, um, the data that we collected, it mirrors what CDC eventually is reporting. And that's great because we want to make sure that we're collecting a data set that reflects reality. It's just that because we are mining from all sorts of sources, and that could be through personal accounts or it could be through local news media or even through local public health that was reporting cases, when you start to organize that content you can build an epidemic curve, but you can do that in real time. And yes, it takes CDC a long while to organize that content and pull it together and eventually release it. In this case, we were able to pull that information and actually publish it pretty quickly. So it's an early identification of a problem through the organization of data. But secondly, we can start to trace the origins of this event. So if you think about it, a lot of the cases resulted from sort of at-home fabrication of devices or counterfeit pods. Um, there may be a mix of nicotine and THC. We're still trying to understand and unwind, unpack what actually took place. But what we can see is sort of an increase in discussion around these counterfeit pods that are happening online. So we recently started looking at comments on YouTube 
and looking at videos of posting of people that were actually creating and manufacturing these pods and selling them and explaining to people, other people, how to make them. You can see the increase in these videos, increase in the comments around these videos. That tells us very early on that something was taking place. And in fact, the public might have known it was going on well before even public health did. Outbreaks, you know, are generally associated with infectious diseases. How does this illness compare to other recent outbreaks, for example, the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo? Yeah, it's very similar uh, when we start investigating vape-related illness. This is still low case count, and it's very similar to a high virulence event like Ebola, which is also low case count. And so that's a blessing and a curse. On one hand, you're going to have a lot of sensitivity, so people are going to be looking for cases, right? Because it's not like a flu epidemic, which is impacting a huge parts of the population. It's a small number of cases. So it's, it's in some ways a needle in haystack. But once people are tuned to looking for these cases, a lot of people are going to start reporting, and it's going to be coming through these channels. So with Ebola, we had a very similar situation where we had unstructured data from various channels like NGOs, Doctors Without Borders reporting about cases, but you had a pretty good confidence that once they were reporting about the cases, they were real. Similarly here, with vape-related illness, there's a huge amount of attention around it for a small number of cases. It does mean that the first sign of a case is still very challenging to pick up, though. You've mentioned in the past that the numbers reported thus far are likely just the tip of the iceberg. What should we expect as this outbreak unfolds? It's a very complicated event because what we know so far is this is related to sort of a lot of the black market use of these devices. Now, it's interesting because we've seen a very sort of public response to vaping, which has led ultimately to some bans taking place, including in the state of Massachusetts. And that, of course, is a positive thing for the impact it's having in the underage community. The problem that we are worried about is what does that mean for the use of these counterfeit products? Because if the commercial products are not available and people want to still utilize these, they will just ultimately start turning to more black market products. So our concern is that these events are far from over. And if we're pushing more of the market towards these counterfeit products, we're only going to see more cases emerge. So what does it take exactly to be considered a disease worth monitoring? So of course, we started in the infectious disease landscape. And the work that really sort of took hold was around H1N1, so swine flu, where the first signs of the outbreak were taking place in a small town in, in Veracruz, Mexico. And a local newspaper was talking about it well before sort of CDC or Mexican authorities were disclosing it. And then it ultimately led to a pretty large public health crisis. That's a really good example of how digital tools can work in this case, because there were early signs, people were seeing them, but were not being reported to public health. And if public health didn't have a great handle on it, but ultimately led to a pretty large crisis where we could start to utilize our tools to understand cases and how they emerged. It often is the case that the digital tools are good when it impacts either a large population or there's a lot of attention towards an event. When it's sort of underreported and people don't care about it, then it's harder to mine. So as a good example of that is antibiotic resistance. And we have tools that are tracking resistance using other kinds of methods, but on one hand, there are actually a good amount of cases of resistance, but there's not a lot of public attention. And it's not really an acute crisis. It's like a slow-moving crisis. So in that case, our digital tools are not really picking up much, even though you know, it, there's a huge sort of undercurrent of what's taking place. It doesn't have to be for infectious disease, right? So we've looked at data mining to look at sort of the epidemics of gun violence, right? There's a huge amount of reporting. There's a huge amount of sort of uh, firearm-related deaths that take place in the U.S., that is coming through through the digital channels. 
Very similarly, the opioid epidemic, we've been working on that for a number of years, and there's a huge amount of discussion online on the diversion and abuse of prescription opioids. You can pick up a lot of those signals on the use and misuse of prescription drugs. And even sentiment. So, for instance, there's a huge amount of backlash on vaccines and sentiment around sort of um, people's misunderstanding of vaccines. That is actually prime for understanding because there's a lot of discussion, a lot of interest, and a lot of misinformation. And you could start tracking the misinformation like you would an outbreak online. When I first started hearing about uh, the vaping-associated outbreak, to bring it back to that, my first thought was, is it the device or is it the juice, the substance that's within the device? Does your technique have the ability to discriminate between the two? Yeah, that's when we become a little bit more challenged, right? Because we're talking about informal reporting and it becomes tougher to understand causality. This is always sort of a drawback of some of these tools, right? They're great from an observational perspective. They're great at signal identification. They're great at sort of the canary in the coal mine. But unpacking that to get some level of causality, that requires a different level of data streams, different level of study. But it provides us some insight of where to start to look. So tell me, how does higher-level data mining impact patient privacy? Patient privacy is always you know, the top discussion, right? When we're talking about data that's online and it's individuals disclosing it, we have to really think very carefully about how we're mining that information, how we're organizing it, and how we're repurposing it. We've actually published several articles on the idea of patient privacy and removal of identification of personal information. Now, it really depends on the data source, right? Because we spent a lot of years working off of Facebook data. Um, that really required a certain level of protection on the kind of data we were tapping into. If you think about Twitter, slightly different perception of people's privacy on Twitter. People are disclosing to the public. They you know, they know that the data is fully out there. Um, and then you go even deeper when we're mining, say, Google search query data. Now, that becomes a real concern because people didn't even know that they had their data that were being used for any purpose, even if it's a positive purpose for social good, which is understanding impacts of public health. And so we spend a lot of time focused on data aggregation and de-identification of information. And so when we publish this, there's no ability to trace back to any individual reporting. Do you have a vision for where you see digital surveillance in the near future? So a lot of our work over time has sort of changed from sort of passive data collection to active. So a lot of the work we've talked about in this piece is focused on this idea that um, we're mining what people are, the discussions that are happening, whether that's on social media or in comments on YouTube. And that gives us a large-scale understanding of what's happening. The problem is we're still trying to infer sort of what's happening through sort of data that wasn't collected for the purpose of public health surveillance. What we're doing now, and we've spent a lot of years doing this, is sort of more active data collection. So there are opportunities to build better crowdsourcing tools that engage a large population that helps us get much more granular and potentially uncover some of these causality issues. So for instance, we run a project called Flu Near You, which is all about active crowdsourcing. People tell us their symptoms on a weekly basis, tell us whether they have gone the vaccine, and we can quickly understand the unfolding flu epidemic every year. We can understand vaccine efficacy very quickly. We can understand impacts on demographics. That data is much richer than what we could extract from, say, Google search data. And that's what we're actually doing with vaping. So we're actually launching a U-Vape project, which is essentially going to have people uh, self-identification of the use of these products and any issues that they've experienced, from very minor issues in breathing all the way to more severe events. And what we'll hope is that through a level of engagement that we'll get some more granular data and be able to sort of unpack these events in a way that we weren't through sort of the more passive data tools. Okay, so we look forward to seeing 
what the future holds in terms of this outbreak and what uh, you have to say about it. Dr. Brownstein, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much. And great to meet a fellow Canadian. Can go drink some Molson's now. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay. You're buying. So we wait patiently while this outbreak plays out and perhaps learn things slightly faster with Dr. Brownstein's help. I would like again to thank Dr. Brownstein for joining us in conversation about how this public health crisis came to be and what we can expect going forward. Dr. Brownstein's Twitter handle is at John Brownstein. For more information about vaping-associated lung disease, go to nejm.org vaping. Our production team here at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Special thanks also to our NEJM education editor, Dr. Opie Hamvik. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggestions for future podcast topics, please email us at resident360 at nejm.org. Remember to subscribe to the NEJM social media sites, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook via nejm.org pages. On behalf of the New England Journal of Medicine, this is Dr. Ahmad Zaheen signing off.